I'm Andrew Claven, and this is Another Kingdom. Be sure to head over to dailywire.com and become a subscriber to get early access to our episodes ad-free. In the last episode, Austin was lowered into a pit on the outskirts of Neufeld, the village of the eunuch zombies. There he found the remains of all the women who had been sacrificed to a hideous beast. The beast came for him and was about to devour him when he was pulled through a cave opening and was sent back to the motel in California. He managed to escape the cops who were about to arrest him for the killing of Billiard Ball and went to his sister's apartment looking for clues to her whereabouts. In the middle of the ransacked room, he found a secret message guiding him to his parents' place. But when he opened the door to leave, he found himself looking through a portal back to Newfell, where he was about to be eaten by the beast. And now, episode three of Another Kingdom, performed by Michael Knowles. Shuddering, I shut the door quickly. My eyes flicked here and there in a sightless panic. What do I do? I thought over and over again. What do I do? I fought the panic down. I took a deep breath. I used my Galleanan powers to silence my mind, to focus past my fear. I remembered. I had a sword. In the fantasy kingdom, or hallucination, or whatever the hell it was, I had this magic sword that appeared whenever I began to fight. Queenie Linda had left it in Shadow Wood as a gift for her chosen hero, who turned out, absurdly, to be me. The King of the Wood, Toritanio, had given me the sword and a suit of magical armor to go with it. The liquid mercury-like armor would pour out of my skin and cover me head to toe during a battle. It wasn't impenetrable. The beast would almost certainly bite right through it, but it would offer me some protection. Maybe. What if, I thought, what if I could reach the sword before the beast ate me? What if I could strike at the creature, use the speed with which it was pulling me to add to the force of the blow? I nodded to myself. Good idea. Encouraged, I opened the door again. The magical passage into the eunuch zombie cave of female sacrifice was still there. I shut the door. I had a better idea. Don't go back in there, asshole. What are you, crazy? There had to be another way out of here. Even jumping out the window would be better than stepping back into that cave like a world-class idiot. A three-story fall might break my leg, but that was nothing compared to being bitten in half and having my remains dumped among the slaughtered female population of Neufeld. Drawing another deep breath to keep myself steady, I looked around, searching for an escape route. The little studio had two windows on one wall. Both faced the back of the building, looking out on the macadam lane that ran along the garages. I tried to remember what the building looked like from the outside. Was there a way to climb down? I went to the window, kicking through the debris on the floor, flinching at the stabbing pain that still went through my leg with nearly every step. I unlocked one of the windows and lifted the lower sash. I stuck my head out into the night. What I saw gave me a strange double feeling. Two feelings superimposed on one another. A thrill of hope and a twinge of nausea at the same time. Yes, there was a way out, but it seemed nearly as dangerous as the passage back to Edgemond. The face of the building was smooth. There was nothing to hang on to, no path I could climb down. But one apartment over, there was a balcony, and two more balconies under that one. 
a line of balconies with waist-high railings around them and with glass doors that led into the other apartments. If I could somehow jump over to the nearest balcony, I might be able to go into one of those apartments or maybe climb down from balcony to balcony until I reached the ground safely. At first glance, the odds I could make such a leap without breaking my neck did not seem good. At second glance, they seemed even worse. The jump to the balcony wasn't very far, just a couple of yards at most, but there was no way to get into a good position for the leap. Riley's window had no outer sill, nothing to balance on. I would have to climb out and try to swing over somehow. But when I thought of the alternative, stepping through that door, feeling those claws digging into my leg again, having that unimaginably horrifying creature devour me, well, a broken neck did not seem so bad. A cool autumn breeze swept over me, chilling the sweat that had now broken out on my face. I steeled my nerves and climbed out. It was awful. I put one leg through the window, then my torso, then the other leg. And the next moment, I was dangling there with my fingers gripping the windowsill for dear life. I only had to glance down to picture myself lying below on the front lawn, helpless, writhing in pain until the police came to take me away. Hanging there, I eyed the balcony sidelong. It was only now I realized how nearly impossible it was going to be to get the traction I needed to make the jump across the gap. But I had to try. I had to try fast, too. The sill was sharp, digging into my fingers. My hands were sweating, making my grip slippery and unsure. I only had about 30 seconds before I lost my hold and fell. Panting with fear, I shuffled over as far to the right as I could, as close to the balcony as I could get. Even so, the railing seemed about a mile away and about two miles too high to reach. Grunting, I bent my knees and pressed my sneaker toes against the smooth wall of the building, trying to engineer whatever leverage I could. My fingers were slipping. I had to do it. I had to do it now. I leapt. I reached out for the railing. I missed it completely. I plummeted downward through the empty air. For a second that seemed to last forever, I was in freefall, my hands clawing wildly at nothing. A second later, my fingers touched iron. It was the railing of the next balcony down. Desperate, I grabbed hold of it. I kept falling, then jolted to a halt. Sheer zany terror gave me super strength. In an instant, I hauled myself up and scrambled over the top of the railing. I tumbled down onto the wooden floor of the balcony and hit with a thud. Still soaring on adrenaline, I jumped to my feet at once. How was I? Was I hurt? No, I wasn't. What now? My brain was buzzing, thoughts flying so fast I could barely think them before they were gone. The balcony doors, the glass doors into the apartment, were they locked? The curtains inside were drawn. The apartment beyond was dark. If I could just get in, I could get back down to the garage. I stepped to the doors, seized the handle, pulled it to the side. There was no lock, just a flimsy latch. A harder tug and the door slid open. Huzzah. I could do this. I could get out of here. I could get away. I slipped through the curtains into the shadowy apartment. The lights went on. A young woman in a thigh-high nightshirt stood in the bedroom doorway, staring at me, mouth agape. I held my hands out toward her. Don't scream, I said. She started screaming. She put her hands over her mouth. She shook her head so that her long brown hair swung back and forth. Stop screaming, I shouted. She didn't stop. She went on screaming. She was very good at it. I'm leaving, I shouted, moving toward the front door. I'm already leaving. Get out, she screamed. I am getting out. Just let me go. Stop screaming. Why are you even in my apartment? She screamed. I can't explain. 
I'm calling the police right now. Don't call the police. I'm leaving. She ran back into the bedroom to get her phone. I ran to the door. I grabbed the knob. What if the passage back to Edgemond was here too? My God, said the young woman. She was in the bedroom doorway again, the phone to her ear. You're covered in blood. I need help. She screamed into the phone. You don't need help. I'm leaving. Stop screaming, I shouted. I pulled the door open. No passage into fantasy land, just the hallway. I raced out. Doors in the hall were opening. People were peeking out to see what all the screaming was about. Look at the blood, one man shouted. Call the police, shouted another man. I shouted at everyone. Don't call the police. Everyone had a phone. Everyone was calling the police. I took off. I ran like a demon in the Demon Olympics. I reached the stairwell door, dragged the door open. Only at the last second did I think to hesitate, to look through, to make sure I wouldn't be thrown back into the eunuch zombie cave of female sacrifice. But no, it was just the stairwell. Grab him, someone shouted behind me. I'm calling the police, shouted a woman. This was going incredibly badly, the worst escape ever. I raced through the door. I bounded down the stairs, taking three steps at once, ignoring the pain that knifed through my leg every time I landed. I reached the garage floor. I pulled open the door, another door, so many doors, doors everywhere, but here too, thank God, no magic passage. I dashed into the garage. I saw my car, my Camaro, but that's not what I wanted. I dug hurriedly in my pocket. I brought out Riley's Volkswagen key. I pressed the button. The Volks, a ratty little gray Passat dented all over, blinked its lights in the garage's far corner. I rushed toward it, pulled the driver's door open, looking over my shoulder to see if anyone was chasing after me. No one. Gritting my teeth with determination, I slipped through the Volkswagen door. I only saw the magic passage at the last second. Too late, I was already falling in behind the wheel. The next moment, my calf exploded in searing agony as I felt the monster's claws sunk deep into my flesh again. I was dragged out of the mouse hole and back into the cave and lifted swiftly toward the creature's drooling jaws. I didn't think. There was no time to think. I was lifted in the air upside down. Spinning helplessly, I caught glimpses of the unimaginable beast, that terrifying sight that had made my mind go blank the first time I saw it. The daggers of its teeth. The blackness of its maw the horror of its shape. The cave filled with that roar that was so dreadfully like many women shrieking. I drew my sword. It was because the idea had occurred to me back in Riley's apartment. That's why I was able to act so quickly, without a thought. That's why I was not paralyzed with fear and blinded with disgust as I had been before. I had had time, back in Walnut Creek, to process the madness of this moment, and so now, with only a single second of life left to me, my hand was steady and swift, acting almost before my brain could tell it what to do. As the magic mercury armor poured out of my skin and covered me, I whipped the sword in a vicious arc and slashed out wildly toward the monster. Green, black blood sprayed everywhere. The whole cave echoed with that hideous, shrieking chorus of a roar. The beast lost its grip on me. I fell. I would have cracked my head on the raw stone below, but the rotting bodies of the women broke my fall. I tumbled off the rancid pile amid a shower of clattering bones. I rolled, only hoping, in my confusion, that I was rolling away from the shrieking monster. I jumped to my feet, 
The green glow of the slimy walls lit the swirling yellow gases seeping up through the floor. My lungs were filled with the nauseating miasma. I turned and faced the creature. What a thing it was. What an awful thing. A beast like a dragon. But by some ghastly magic, its body was covered not with scales, but with fragments of its victims. It had become an abominable amalgam of the people it had killed. Each piece of it had been a woman once. A piece of a woman. The slab of a thigh. A wobbling breast. A torso. Worst of all, here and there along its flank and up its serpentine neck, there were faces. Dead faces. Dead women gaping at me with slack mouths and open eyes. These fragments made, all together, a patchwork thing. A nightmare quilt of mutilated humanity woven together into one great dragon-like behemoth. It roared with all their ghostly voices. It reared so high its head nearly scraped the ceiling of the cave. I stood beneath it, quailing in my heart of hearts. But clothed in liquid armor and gripping my sword in one sweaty hand, I braced myself for battle, for the simple reason that I had no choice. I saw where I had wounded the thing. I had sliced a part of its forearm that had once been a human leg. It was slashed and bleeding black. The creature had recoiled from the pain of the blow, but even in that moment as I watched it, it recovered. It drew itself up for a fresh assault. Its snaky neck whiplashed back, and I understood the beast was preparing to strike at me jaws first. It meant to snap me in half with a single clamping bite of its enormous teeth. I peered at it through the green mist. All my pain and all my fear were channeled into radiant awareness. I had to time this next move perfectly. The creature struck. With stunning speed, its head snapped out of the foggy upper reaches of the cave. Its open jaws, its dripping teeth, filled all my vision. I spun to the right, full circle, out of its reach. I felt the thing's head blow past my back. I saw the green smoke swirling crazily in its wake. I came around and struck at it, a backhand blow. The gleaming silver blade cut hard across the side of the dragon's throat. Horribly, the shining edge lanced through what had once been a woman's face, cutting it in half so that it spat green-black blood at me. God, the noise. That shriek, the shriek of a hundred voices. The whole cave trembled with it as the beast snapped backward in pain. I, still turning, stumbled on a dead body at my feet. I staggered, tripped over another corpse. I reached out for the cave wall and only just managed to keep myself standing. The dragon, meanwhile, wheeled around to find me and strike at me again. I saw its eyes flare. Huge, fiery black eyes. Blood flowed from the bisected face on its neck down over the body parts that formed the front of it. Blood dripped from the leg in its wounded forearm, too. Its shrieky roar was an angry babble. It sounded like a mob of female ghosts rioting on some haunted street in hell. It swiped at me with its claws this time, claws like scythes. I stumbled against the cave wall and swiped back with my blade. We both missed, but I, in my light armor, was faster than the unwieldy dragon. I stabbed at it before it could fully retreat. This time, I wounded the naked female arm on the back of its paw. The dragon snarled, its eyes burning. It reared above me again, its huge teeth bared. I crouched, gripping my sword hard in anticipation, trying to gauge which way it would come at me. I was tiring. I couldn't fend the creature off much longer. But then, then something happened. I wasn't sure what. The beast breathed deep, 
a low, growly breath. It glared at me with what looked like real rage, glared as if it hungered not so much for my flesh as for revenge and my destruction. We'll get back to the story in a minute. If you're enjoying Another Kingdom, please be sure to give us a five-star rating on iTunes. It really helps. And then go over to dailywire.com and watch Another Kingdom. Our incredible art, animation, and dramatic footage brings the story to life. Enjoy the rest of this episode. But at the same time, its hot stare changed focus. It seemed to be listening to something, some secret voice I couldn't hear. The next moment, the dragon retreated, one heavy step. The cave floor shuddered with the impact. The rotting bodies trembled with it. A skull was jarred loose from atop a pile of corpses. It rolled down to the ground where its lower jaw cracked and broke away. The beast began to turn. Its face remained toward me another second. Its eyes remained on me with that same baleful glare, on fire for revenge. When it growled again, I thought I heard those phantom women's voices speaking. I couldn't make out the words, not really, but I felt sure the beast was telling me, we'll meet again. And with that, it swiveled away. With surprising lizard quickness, it stomped off into its high corridor, into the green mist, into the far shadows and out of sight. I watched it go, amazed. Was that it? Was the battle over? It seemed to be, for now at least. For now, the creature seemed to have decided or to have been told by that voice I couldn't hear, that the risk of further battle was too high, that we would fight another time, in another place, where it would have another, better chance at me. I lowered my trembling sword hand. The darkness of death lifted from me, and I breathed a sobbing sigh of pure relief. I sheathed my blade. It vanished into nothing, leaving my hand empty. My armor slowly melted back into my flesh. I stood there in the green mist, in the yellow light, in the cave filled with women's corpses. My very bones were aching with weariness, and the wounds in my leg had begun to torment me again. I looked down at them. The gauze I had put on my gashes back in Riley's apartment was gone, of course. My pants leg was torn ragged, and I could see my blood flowing freely through the tatters. Still stunned that the fight was so suddenly finished, I glanced over at the mouse hole. That was the only exit left to me. I didn't know where it went, but I was going to find out, right now. Limping, wincing with pain at every step, I went to the opening. The headless dead woman was still sitting there, propped against the wall. I tried not to look at her as I climbed back into the hole. I dragged myself along on my belly through the narrow space. Again, as before, I saw the opening widen, saw it by the green glow of light that came in behind me from the eunuch zombie cave of female sacrifice. Again, as before, I felt the cool air reach me, and again, my spirits lifted to think there must be a way out, a way back to the world above. But what then? My stallion was gone, and after days of travel on horseback, I was still only in the first of the eleven lands. How could I ever finish my quest and save Galliana? I wasn't even sure I could get out of Egemond, cursed, as it seemed to be, by the wizard Curtain. The passage had widened enough now that I could crawl along the rough stone more quickly. I could still feel the cool outside air washing over me. But when I looked ahead, when I saw the place beyond the reach of the green light, there was only darkness, and more than darkness, absolute pitch blackness, so much blackness slowly folding over me that when I reached the end of the tunnel, I couldn't even see I was there. 
I just felt my hand slip over the edge into nothing. I waved at the emptiness trying to gauge how deep a drop it was. I couldn't tell. I couldn't see a thing. It was hard work, but I managed to turn myself around in the narrow space. I cautiously slid my legs out over the edge. I found a crack in the rock and dug my fingers in and held on as best I could. I cautiously lowered my legs and slid my torso over the edge of the corridor until I was hanging by my fingertips. How crazy it would be, I thought. How crazy to escape that dragon and then die in a fall. I let go of the rock and dropped. I hit the ground almost at once. The impact sent lancing bolts of pain up my wounded leg, but the fall was nothing, two or three feet. I stumbled and then regained my balance. I squinted, staring. Nothing. I was absolutely blind. I had heard the expression. I could not see my hand in front of my face. Well, I couldn't. I stood still, confused and overcome by so much darkness. And all at once, a hand reached out of the dark and seized my wrist. I let out a high-pitched shout and jumped about three feet into the air like some wimpy character in a second-rate slapstick comedy. I tore free of the gripping hand, but even before my feet touched down again, it occurred to me the hand had not really felt all that scary. It was small and soft, a child's hand. Don't be afraid, came a little boy's whisper from the darkness. It's only me. It took me a second or two to catch my breath. Then I said, Okay, who's me? For answer, the child slid his little hand into mine. Instinctively, I took hold of it. I came here looking for my mother, he said. They took her away. They took all the mothers. I nodded. I saw. They took my sister, too. And I was looking for them. Then the monster came and I had to run away. Did you see the monster? Yeah, I sure did. It was scary. It sure was. I had to run away, he repeated sadly. Then he asked me, Did it hurt you? Yeah, my leg a little. It clawed me. How about you? No, I was too fast. I got into the hole and crawled through. I know a place. There's a pool in the forest. The crying man lives there. He makes the water magic. It will make your leg feel better. I stared down in the direction of his voice, but I still couldn't see him, not even the shape of him. Do you know the way out of here? I asked him. And when there was no answer, I said, Are you nodding? Yes. I can't see you. I can't see anything. Can you see? Yes. My eyes got used to the dark. Why didn't you find your way home then? I don't want to go home. I don't like home anymore. Now that there are no mothers there. Right. I let out a long sigh. My leg was killing me. If there really was a magic pond where I could get some magic medical care, I wanted to magic over there in a big magic hurry. Well, lead the way, kid, I said. Let's get out of here. The boy's tiny fingers closed around the edge of my hand. I felt him tug me forward. I began to walk. Go slower, I told him. I can't see. Ow! I had brushed the top of my head on a low ceiling of rough rock. Watch your head, said the little boy. Thanks. We walked on, me blind. The path went uphill. After a while, I could feel the cool air of the outdoors coming to me, stronger than before, damp and heavy as if with rain. 
But here there was no light, none at all. I had to keep my free hand held up in front of me for protection. I had to shuffle very slowly to keep my balance. What's your name? I asked the boy as we went. He didn't answer me at first. Then he said, I don't remember now. My mother knew. You don't remember your own name? No. How long have you been down here? Long. A week? How long is that? Seven days. The sun rises and sets seven times. That's a week. I don't know, seven. It's the fingers on one hand, then another finger, then another. Oh, no. I've been here much longer than that. How do you live? I asked him. How do you eat? I just do. This wasn't getting me very far. Either the kid was living like an animal, on mindless instinct, or he was hiding something from me. But I had to keep trying. There were things I needed to know if I was going to get out of this cave, and out of this country, alive. On we went, on and up. I was about to ask him another question when, in the distance, I heard a low, throaty growl. I stopped in my tracks, holding the boy back. What was that? I asked him. Just thunder. Are you sure? Oh, yes, he said. I wasn't. I wasn't even a little sure. And it occurred to me to wonder, should I really be following this kid? Was he really on my side? Was he really a little boy at all? I couldn't see him. He might have been some demon agent of the evil wizard imitating a little boy's voice so he could lead me to my death. I mean, how did he live down here? And how the hell could he see when there was no light? It didn't make any sense. The child urged me to start moving again. Come on, he tugged my hand. It's only thunder. It can't hurt you. Don't be afraid. I followed his tug and shuffled forward, flinching at the pain in my leg. Tell me something, I said to the kid. What happened in your village? It wasn't always like it is now, right? I mean, it must have been different before they took the mothers away. Oh, yes, it was different then, before the wrinkled man came. The wrinkled man. Curtin, the wizard. The man in the starry robe. Yes, said the boy, in the starry robe. What was the village like before he came? I stopped again. I thought I had seen something. For a split second, I thought I had seen a flicker of light up ahead, a dim silver flicker. But it was gone so fast I couldn't be certain. And then there came another low growl. Well, I thought, maybe the kid was right. Maybe that flicker was lightning, and the growl was thunder like he said. I relaxed a little, my suspicions fading. We continued to move. The air grew fresher. I thought we had to be approaching the mouth of the cave. It was regular, the boy said then. What? At home. Before the man came in the story robe, it was just regular. There was another flicker. It lit up the stone in the distance for two quick instants. A few seconds later, the growl repeated. Lightning. Thunder. We were definitely getting close to the outside. There was snow and rain, said the boy. Sometimes it was winter. In the spring, invaders came and the men had to fight them or they would take the mothers and sisters away and our food, too. Sometimes there was no food because the weather was bad. The men prayed for protection from the invaders. They prayed for good weather and food. 
But God didn't help us, so they prayed to the wizard instead. For all I'd been through, the hideous monster back in the cave, the cops after me, billiard ball and all the rest, there was still something unnerving about listening to the boy's tale, something about his dreamy, hypnotic voice wafting up to me in the dark. It sent a chill through me. It was like listening to a ghost story by a campfire in the dead of night. Go on, I said to him. The men prayed to the wizard and what? The wizard came? Not at first. But then they made shrines for him. They made statues of him and put them all around. How did they even know there was a wizard? I asked. The boy hesitated a moment. Then he said, I don't know. They just knew somehow. Okay, so they built shrines and statues for him. What happened then? They gave him one of the sisters, said the boy. I shuddered in the dark as we trudged along. You mean they sacrificed one of the girls? I don't know. They took her away. She was crying. She never came back. And then the wizard came? Oh, yes. After they gave him the sister, he came. It took me a moment to follow the logic of this, but then I got it. Sure, I said. If the men got rid of the women, there'd be no mothers and children, no mouths to feed, and nothing to draw the invaders. Without women and children, there'd be plenty of food, and peace in our time. Was that it? They took my mother and sister, the boy repeated tonelessly, as if reciting something he had memorized for school. I climbed down here to find them, but then the monster came. My God, I whispered. So the prayers brought the wizard to Egemond, and then he went on from there to Galeana. The boy didn't answer, but that had to be right. Curtin drew his magic from the minds of men. That's what Toritanio, the king of Shadow Wood, had told me. That's why the wizard thrived in cities. The more people he had around him, the stronger he became. After the idiots in Newfell conjured him out of whatever nightmare world had spawned him, he took over Egemond and then moved on to Galliana. He'd seduced Lord Iron there, twisted the minds of the people, ousted the queen, and staged his revolution. He won't stop there. He must be planning to take over all the eleven lands, I murmured, more to myself than the boy. The light flickered on the cave walls again, and this time I was certain. It was lightning all right. And when the thunder rolled right after it, I could tell by the sound that we were very close to the mouth of the cave, the exit. I peered hard into the dark to see if I could make out at least the silhouette of the boy beside me. But so far, no, the dark was still too thick. The boy tugged on my hand, and his soft, ethereal voice floated up to me. You'll hear the man crying in the children's forest. That's where the pond is. What? I said. And just then, my hand, held up in front of me, touched raw stone, a wall, had we reached a dead end? The boy tugged me to the right. This way. I followed him a few more steps. Then thunder and lightning struck almost simultaneously. First the flickering lightning, then the thunder and the lightning both at once in a long, muttering, twinkling flash. By that light, I saw the cave exit. Thrilled to find the way out of this awful place, I turned to the boy. I was still holding tight to his hand. The lightning struck again and the cave lit up right around me. I was alone. There was no one with me. I leapt back, letting go of the hand, or whatever the hell it was I was holding. 
The dark settled over the tunnel again. Not full dark now. There was some dim moon glow coming in through the cave mouth. I looked around. No boy. No one. Just me. And yet then, from the emptiness, the boy's voice came again. You'll hear the man crying. In the children's forest. That's where... But then the voice faded away into silence. I stood there gaping like a buffoon at the place where the boy should have been. What was he, I wondered? A ghost? Had he died when he came down here looking for his mother? Was he cursed to wander in the dark of the cave, speaking to the rare visitor who escaped the dragon? Or was he something weirder, worse, more sinister than that? My heart beat hard with fear. Bumps rose on my skin. A whistling wind blew in through the cave entrance. It stirred my hair and chilled me. I swallowed hard. I wanted to get out of here. Now. I limped quickly to the cave mouth. What a relief it was to step through, out of that darkness into even what little light there was. The sky was now covered with thick clouds. The stars were gone from view, but the bright moon still illuminated a swirling patch of thunderheads. The faint glow spread out over the long, grassy plain beneath. I cast my eyes around and saw the dark line of a forest in the distance. I figured that was the forest the ghost boy, or whatever he was, was talking about. The children's forest. A harsh noise startled me. Frightened, I turned toward it quickly. I laughed out loud. My stallion. I could make out the shape of my black stallion standing not a dozen yards away from me. He reared and lifted his forelegs into the air and whinnied loudly in greeting. It was as if he had just been waiting for me to find my way to him. How the hell had he managed that? But who cared how? There he was. And man, I was delighted to see that horse. He wasn't much of a conversationalist, but just his presence made me feel a little less lonely in this terrible country. Plus, I didn't think I could travel another three steps on my throbbing, bleeding leg. The horse came up close to me. I pressed my face to his and we nuzzled each other. Let's blow this funhouse, I whispered. I stepped into the stirrup and hoisted myself up into the saddle. Ride, I said. We rode. Over the dark land toward the darker forest. In the roiling sky above, the lightning struck again and the thunder followed. I could feel the rain gathering in the air. It wasn't long before the first trees were all around me. A short while after that, I reached the edge of the woods. A tangled depth of darkness stretched away into the distance. But I knew I couldn't go on much further. My leg hurt too much, and the terrors of the cave had exhausted me. I needed rest. I scanned the night, searching for shelter. In the next flash of lightning, I saw what I was looking for. A lean-to, a low log structure about as long as a man, just a little ways off along the tree line. I headed for it. It wasn't much to look at. Three log walls, a plank floor, and a shingle roof. But it would keep me dry till daylight. I pulled up beside it and lowered myself off the stallion, careful not to land too hard and jar my leg. My wounds were really hurting now. The pain was dull and deep, and all the skin around was stiff and thick. I felt like I was coming down with a fever, too. The gashes must have gotten infected. Damn monster probably never washed its claws. Tired, sick, I limped and stumbled into the lean-to like a drunken man. I practically fell onto the plank floor. My eyes began to flutter shut immediately. Then the lightning struck again, and there was the wizard, Curtain, standing over me. I shouted and leapt to my feet, stumbling back in terror until I hit the low wall. 
The wizard just stood there, silent and motionless. I caught my breath as the thunder rolled and the lightning struck again. But in the fresh flicker of light, I saw that, no, it was not the wizard. It was just a painted wooden statue standing in the lean-to corner. It was a good likeness, though. The raisiny face, the malevolent eyes, the tufts of gray hair on his head, and his chin. The starry robe, they were all carved and painted to perfection. They made shrines for him. That's what the ghost boy had said. This place must have been one of their shrines. My stomach rolled over. I gagged, disgusted. I couldn't sleep here. Not with that thing staring at me. One of us had to go. I limped over to the statue and grabbed hold of it. It was heavy, but not too heavy. I rolled it on its base over to the edge of the plank floor. Then I shoved it out of the lean-to. The moment the statue hit the earth, it exploded in a great white flash. My stallion whinnied and backed away from it. Whoa, I said, raising my hand to shield my eyes from the sudden brightness. Blue-white flames rose out of the icon. It burned so hot I had to retreat to the back of the lean-to. But after a few more seconds, the wooden image crumbled to black cinders. A moment more, and it was ash, then gone. Breathing hard, I limped to the edge of the lean-to and gazed down through the dark at the black spot in the grass where the thing had been. The stallion snorted and cautiously returned to sniff at the place. And stay out, I muttered to myself. Then, with a sigh, I lay down on the planks again. This country sucks, I whispered. It did. It was terrible here. Black magic and red danger in the very air. I never thought I would miss Galliana, but I did. I never thought I'd miss Los Angeles, but, well, I almost did. My breathing steadied. My eyes sank shut. I fell asleep. A crash of thunder woke me. It was dawn, a green-gray dawn, still not raining. My stallion stood just outside the lean-to, pawing the ground impatiently. I did not feel good at all. I had a full-blown fever now. My mind was muzzy. My head was hot. The pain in my calf had spread over my whole leg. When I finally worked up the nerve to look down at it, I saw my entire calf had turned dark purple. The claw wounds were swollen and separating, pus seeping from the blackening edges of the gashes. If I didn't get to the magic pond soon, or to a modern hospital in Walnut Creek, I was going to lose the leg. Lose the leg and then die. The stallion snorted at me, pawing the earth. I had to reach up and grab hold of a log in the wall to pull myself to my feet. My leg would barely support my weight. I hopped over to the stallion. He looked down at my wounds. Insofar as I could read the expression on his horsey face, the expression said, Oh, shit. I know, I said. I cried out in pain when I hoisted myself into the saddle. I glanced up at the sky. The thunderheads were growing darker by the second, sickly green and full of rain. It was going to be a bad day. Thunder rolled as the black stallion and I plunged into the woods. Quickly, we were surrounded by a thick, gloomy, eerie forest, entangled branches like witches' arms swaying in the wind around obscure depths of shadow. The wind was strong and brought the scent of rain. Fallen leaves whipped up around the trunks of trees and into the twisted vines. The trees swayed and their wood cracked. The high branches whispered and whistled. My fever grew worse. I had to fight to keep my eyes open, and when they were open, my vision was wavery and unclear. Somehow I managed to feel nauseous and hungry at the same time. 
After a while, I lifted my heavy head and peered into the tenebrous thicket on every side of me. What had the ghost boy said? You'll hear the man crying in the children's forest. I reined in the horse and sat still and listened. All I could hear was the rattling, cracking, whistling, whispering wind. And then, for just a moment, the wind subsided. And I did hear something. Someone, a man's voice, lamenting in the distance. I turned toward the sound, and as I did, I straightened, startled. There was a child there. A child just standing in the woods. A little girl in a brown dress. She had long blonde hair around a face that was so white it seemed bloodless. She stood on the duff between two scrawny elms and stared at me without expression. Then she turned and slowly walked behind one of the thin trees. Somehow, narrow as it was, the trunk obscured her completely. When she didn't appear on the other side, I spurred the horse to step around so I could see where she was hiding. She wasn't hiding anywhere. She was gone. Okay, I thought. That was spooky. Confused, feverish, I blinked hard and searched the woods for her. I turned to the right and cursed. I saw another child there. At least, I thought I did. There was a little boy, grimy and small, staring at me, blank-eyed. The moment I spotted him, he shrank back into the shadows beneath the branches of a spreading maple. He blended with the shadows until, like the girl, he was just gone. Spookier still. And when I turned to the left, damned if it didn't happen again. A girl, a different girl, staring. She sank into the surrounding gloom and melded with it and vanished. The children's forest. What the hell? There was a long, throaty rumble of thunder like a growling beast. I raised my eyes and saw patches of sky through the high branches. It had grown even darker than before, the clouds even heavier with rain. The air around me was turning that strange green color you get just before a mighty storm. The thunder died away, and once again, I heard the sound of a man mourning in the distance. I spurred my horse and rode slowly toward the sound. It was a long ride. A long, scary-as-shit ride. I traveled deeper into the woods, through twisted shadows. My fever bedeviled me, confused me. Every few minutes I saw another child, staring at me, watching me pass. But whenever I looked back, the child sank away and became one with the forest obscurity and was gone. Truly creepy. Maximum creepy. It felt like the whole forest had eyes and was watching me. And who were these children? What did they want? Were they dead? Alive? Were they the wizard's demons? Or just harmless phantoms of my fever? I pushed on through the forest with their fading figures all around me. And all the while, the man in the distance wept. I was getting nearer now. I could make out his words. My love, he cried. My only love. I followed the sound. The cold, wet wind of the oncoming storm swirled around me, and the leaves swirled and the trees squeaked and groaned. I swayed in my saddle, fighting to stay conscious as my fever grew worse, as the sickness closed around my head like a cowl of damp cotton. Who knows how much more time passed before, through the thunder-dark forest, I caught sight of a glint of dull silver. Water. A pond. I prayed to God it was the magic healing pond the ghost boy had told me about. The stallion and I passed through an arc of pine trees into a little grove. There was the pond at the center of the clearing, a large circle of dark water rippling with the wind. 
I blinked hard, sick, groggy. Of its own will, the horse carried me toward the edge of the pond. From all the tree trunks all around me, children peeked at me and then ducked out of sight. But the crying man had stopped crying. The forest was quiet except for the wind. We reached the water. The stallion nosed it, drank it, then lifted his head and nodded and whiffled. It was okay. I slid out of my saddle. I was too weak to hold on, and I made a hard landing, crying out in pain as the impact went up through my leg, which was now stiff and swollen well over the knee. Gripping the leg and wincing, I limped to the pond. The spectral children watched me from the woods. I went on limping until I stepped off the edge of the earth, lost my balance, and fell into the water shoulder first. Splash. The water seemed suddenly to seize me. I cried out once. Then it dragged me down beneath the surface and swallowed me whole. It surrounded me, clutched me, held me and sucked at my body like some gigantic leech. It was agony. It was rapture. I let out a bubbling scream and thrashed and clawed to the surface and was dragged back down again. The pond sucked at my body hard. I could feel the deathly toxins being torn out through my pores, which was great, but in the meantime, I was drowning. I gargled and choked and thrashed back toward the surface. And with that, the water suddenly let me go. I don't know how else to describe it. It just released me. I bobbed up on top of the pond like a cork, gasping and sighing and laughing and crying, too. Weakly, I swam to the shore and pulled myself onto the ground. I fell on my back and lay there, spent, staring up at the wind-whipped pines. I shouted, Oh! and laughed again and lay there, taking stock of my body. I felt better. The fever was gone. The pain in my leg was gone. The swelling, gone. When I could finally gather myself, I lifted my head and looked down at the shredded bottom of my pants leg. My skin was clear. The wounds had vanished. I was healed. I fell back against the ground. The stallion bent over me and nosed my face. Wow, I said to him. That was amazing. For a moment, I had forgotten about the ghost children all around me. I had forgotten about the lamenting man. I turned over and crawled to the edge of the pond. I leaned down and took a drink from my cupped hands. It was cool. It was good. I gazed into the water. I saw an image form on the surface, the image of a face. But it was not my face. It spoke to me. Run, it said. Run for your life. Next time on Another Kingdom. My heart seized in my chest as a whip crack of thunder shook the branches and lightning lit the green dark day. It's the wizard, the man said to me. It's Curtin. He senses your presence. He's coming for you. I knew he was right. I could feel it. This country belonged to Curtin, and the wizard could feel me here. He was angry, too. His anger was in the storm somehow. Somehow his anger and the storm were one and the same and the storm was getting closer. This has been Another Kingdom by Andrew Claven, performed by Michael Knowles. This episode directed and produced by Jonathan Hay, produced by Mathis Glover, executive producer, Jeremy Boring, associate producer, Austin Stevens, edited by Jim Nickel, audio recorded by Mike Cormina, Sound design and mix by Dylan Case. Music composed by Adrian Seeley. Hair, makeup, and wardrobe 
by Jesua Alvera, DIT by Scott Key, and our production assistant is Colton Haas. Visual supervisor, Jake Jackson. Lead illustrator, Rebecca Shapiro. Illustrations by Anthony Clark. Animations by Alvin Tyner and Cole Holloway. Another Kingdom is a Daily Wire Forward Publishing production, Forward Publishing 2018.